Well, as we've been walking through our study of knowing God, tonight we come to chapter 8, which is on the theme of the majesty of God, the majesty of God. And he starts out the chapter just by defining the term majesty, which is essentially the idea of greatness, greatness. And so he says, whenever we come across this term in the scriptures, in reference to God, it is calling us to declare how great God is. And it is asking us to worship him in light of that greatness. He talks about the phrase that God is high above. He is as far as the heavens are uh, in the heavens, or he is above us. And he mentions the fact that the, the Bible uses this phrase to communicate the greatness of God, because when it says that God is in the heavens, it's, it's not really talking about a, a spatial distance, as if God is in one location in the stars somewhere, because really God's everywhere, isn't he? He's, he's omnipresent. Uh, this, this idea of in the heavens is a way of really reminding us that, that God is so far higher above us in terms of his greatness. And so God is far above us and he is therefore to be adored. And uh, one of the things that he laments at the beginning of the chapter is just the fact that in the modern church, the, the theme of God's majesty is greatly diminished, uh, not only in society as a whole, but even within the church, that we don't think great thoughts of God as we ought to. And, and this was a similar theme that R.C. Sproul had in his book, The Holiness of God. If you remember when we walked through that book, he lamented that as well, that we live in an age in which the church, even Christians, don't think of God's majesty as they should. And so he says, we are modern people. And modern people, though they cherish great thoughts of themselves, have as a rule small thoughts of God. And that's a pretty good diagnosis, isn't it, of our era that we live in. We think a lot of ourselves, but we have small thoughts of God. He says, today, vast stress is laid on the thought that God is personal. But this truth is so stated as to leave the impression that God is a person of the same sort as we are. Weak, inadequate, ineffective, a little pathetic. But this is not the God of the Bible at all. He says, like us, he is personal, but unlike us, he is great. In all its constant stress on the reality of God's personal concern for his people and on the gentleness, tenderness, sympathy, patience, and yearning compassion that he shows toward them, the Bible never lets us lose sight of his majesty and his unlimited dominion over all his creatures. So he is a personal God, but he is also majestic. He is almighty. And so he wants us to focus in on that in the first main section of the chapter, personal yet majestic. And he says we get this sense that God is both personal and majestic in Genesis 1, where we see that uh, God is personal. And even in the making of man, he says, let us make mankind in our image after our likeness. Uh, we see God personally uh, taking care to form man out of the dust of the ground and to personally breathe into his nostrils the breath of life. And so you see very personal elements. You see God uh, walking in the cool of the day, and that's his pattern in the Garden of Eden. 
relating to Adam and Eve and speaking with them, communicating his truth to them. So he's a personal God. But yet you also see very clearly in, in the opening chapters of Genesis that God is almighty, isn't he? I mean, he's just speaking the word and there's the universe. There's light, there's land, there's trees, there's life. And, and so God is personal and majestic. And so we get the, the truth from the Bible that God is not an impersonal force or a principle. It's not just some power, not just some force, but he is a living and personal being but an infinite being full of majesty, power, and sovereignty. And one of the titles of God that we see in Genesis and in different places in the Old Testament is El Shaddai, which communicates that idea of the mightiness of God. He is God Almighty. And so he says, how, do, how can we think on God's majesty? How can we think on it rightly? He says in two ways. One one way that we can think rightly of the, the greatness of God is to remove from our thoughts of God any limits that would make him small in our minds. So remove, take out of our minds any limits, any limitations that would make God seem small. And the second way is to, in our minds, and our thinking, to compare him with powers and forces which we regard as great, but then the key is not to regard God as equal to those powers, but as superior and infinitely above those powers. And so these are ways that we can think great thoughts of God. In this section, he focuses our attention on the first of these, that we would remove from our thoughts any limitations on God. And he says Psalm 139 is actually a great example of how to think this way to remove any limitations that we might have in our minds of God. We read in Psalm 30, 139 that God has limitless presence. So David in Psalm 139 says, uh, if I were to go and make my bed in the depths of the deep and shale, you're there. If I were to rise on the clouds and go to the, the heavens, you're there. Wherever I go, you're there. There's nowhere where I can go, flee from your presence. He says, even inside my mother's womb, you're there. There, there is no place where he can flee from God's presence. And what he is emphasizing in Psalm 139 is that that's a comfort. That's, that's a treasure to him to know that wherever he goes, his God is with him. That there's nowhere where he can escape God's presence. And that's a comfort to him. So there's no limits to God's presence. He's everywhere. There's no limit to his knowledge. Past, present, future. Uh, David speaks in very personal terms of him being put together, formed in his mother's womb. And he said, uh, before I even had any days actually lived on the earth, Lord, you know, you knew every single one of them. You knew all about me, even while before I was born, you knew all about my days, my life that I would live even before I was born limitless knowledge. And Psalm 139 communicates the idea of limitless power as well, that, that God's power is infinite. There is nothing that God can't do. And so Psalm 139, he, he points us to that Psalm to, to break these limits that we might have on our thinking of God. Any, any restrictions, any limitations, any smallness that we might try to put on God. He says, Psalm 139 and many other scriptures 
knock those limits down. They, they just blow them away. So we need to think big thoughts of God with no limitations. And then the second one, second suggestion that he had in the chapter was to think on things that we regard as great and to uh, see God in comparison to those things, but so far high and above those things. And he says Isaiah 40 is a good example of that, that helps us to think great thoughts of God. In Isaiah 40, there's a, a series of, of questions, a series of dialogues that, that shows us God in comparison to different elements within his world, different things that God is doing. And by, by showing those things to us, it, it magnifies God. And so the first one is, he says, God is greater than his works. And his works are great. So he lists off some of the things that God has done. He talks about creation. He talks about God's providence. He talks about the way that God moves in history and and moves peoples. God is great and his works are great. And by looking at the, the things that God has done, it makes us think even greater thoughts of God. Uh, Just think about this. God, with a simple word, said, let there be light. And there was light. Some of the most powerful uh, energy and heat and light that we can imagine in the world was formed by God with a word. Let there be light. That's just one work of God. How much higher is God than just that one display of his power? So he is so far higher and greater than his works. He is greater than the nations. And Isaiah is writing to a people in Isaiah 40 that were beaten down. They were discouraged. And the people of Israel in Isaiah's day had been under the thumb of different nations. And whether it be Babylon or uh, Isaiah pointing forward, looking to uh, the, uh, the Persians and Darius or Cyrus. You have the Assyrians talked about a lot in Isaiah. So all of these nations that were oppressors to God's people. And in comparison to the kingdom of Assyria, in comparison to the kingdom of Babylon, little Judea, little Jerusalem seems so small, so weak in comparison to these other nations. And yet God says the nations are like a drop in a bucket. And he moves them as he wills. He sets up kings. He takes down kings, as Daniel says. And he's, he's moving these kings and nations to do his bidding because he is the sovereign Lord. And so when you set the nations up, you see how incredibly huge and powerful and complex that is. And then you say, and then you, he says, that's like a drop in the bucket to God. Just compare that even to our day. Think about all the complex things that are going on around us. You know, we've got our own government has its own share of turmoil right now. You know, people can't get along to accomplish anything in our government. You've got nations fighting with one another. Uh, You've got 
uh, all that's going on in Syria and Iraq. And, and you've got ISIS and, and Syria and Iran and Turkey. And, and they're, everybody's trying to get a piece of the pie in, in that portion of the world. And it's complex and it's, it's difficult. And then you've got all that's going on in Afghanistan. You've got trade and economics with China. And there's, it's complex, isn't it? It's a, it's a huge, massive, complex world. And it's like a drop in the bucket to God. He is greater than the nations. He is greater than the world. We're even getting bigger than, are we, than the nations. He's greater than the world. He made the world. He spoke it into existence. He is the Lord of it, of heaven and earth. As massive and huge as the world is, whether you're talking about the people in it or even the, the world, the, the earth itself, it is, God is so much greater. God is greater than authorities. So in Isaiah 40, he also compares God to the other great ones that we might think of in our world, whether it be kings or uh, emperors, governors, people that have authority and that can move our lives and and have an incredible influence on our lives. And Isaiah says, God's the king of them. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He's greater than authorities. He is greater than the stars. So now we're expanding it to the universe. So when you start to compare then God to these things that we can see, things that we can perceive, we can't see God, right? So we can't see God. So it's hard for us sometimes in our minds to get uh, a thought of the greatness of God. How, How can we describe it? Well, you can't describe it perfectly. All you can say is it's greater than this. It's greater than this. It's greater than this. It's infinite. So the biggest, most powerful things that you can imagine, God's greater than that. He has no limits. And so what should our response be then to this majesty of God? And he draws this from Isaiah 40 as well. What is our response to the greatness of God? In Isaiah 40, 25, it says, To whom then will you compare me? that I should be like him, says the Holy One. He says, this question rebukes wrong thoughts about God. So God has no equal. God has no equal. There is no one that is on the same level as God. There's no one who's even close. So any, any reductionistic limiting thoughts that we would have of God, we need to correct those. We need to remove those limitations and boundaries. And, and if we're comparing God to anything, then we need to remember that God is so far higher above anything that we can possibly imagine. Nothing can really be compared to him and put him in the same level, same statement in that way. So this question rebukes wrong thoughts about God. He says, uh, quoting from the chapter, Jaya Packer says, uh, this is Luther to Erasmus. Your thoughts of God are too human. He says, this is where most of us go astray. Our thoughts of God are not great enough. We fail to reckon with the reality of his limitless wisdom and power. He says, too often when we think about God, we think of God in human terms. But we need to go higher. We need to go greater. Second question in response to the greatness of God from Isaiah 40 is in verse 27. 
Why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? My cause is disregarded by my God. He says this question rebukes wrong thoughts about ourselves. And I would say wrong thoughts about ourselves in relationship to God. So uh, this question in Isaiah forty twenty seven arises out of, I guess, a doubt from the people of Israel, whether or not God still cared about them. Is God going to help us? In light of everything that's happened to us as a nation, all of these oppressors, all these enemies, has God forgotten about us? And Isaiah's rebuke to them is, of course God hasn't forgotten about you. It would be impossible for God to forget about you. And so in the chapter, J.I. Packer says, he never abandons anyone on whom he has set his love, nor does Christ, the good shepherd, ever lose track of his sheep. It is as false as it is irreverent to accuse God of forgetting or overlooking or losing interest in the state and needs of his own people. So in correcting this thought of ourselves in relationship to God, we should never imagine that God is far away or that he has forgotten about us or that that what's going on in our lives has escaped God's notice. He knows he's there. He's with us. Even in the difficult times, even in the trials, the difficulties that we walk through, God is there and he's sovereign and he has a purpose in all that he's doing. So he never abandons us. And then the third question is from verse 28. He says, do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary and his understanding no one can fathom. He says this question rebukes our slowness to believe in God's majesty, our slowness to believe in God's majesty. And so he finishes up the chapter by asking these questions from Isaiah 40. What is the trouble? He asks, have you been imagining that I, the creator, have grown old and tired? Has nobody ever told you the truth about me? The rebuke is well-deserved by many of us. How slow we are to believe in God as God, sovereign, all-seeing, and almighty. How little we make of the majesty of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We need bigger thoughts of God. The Bible reveals to us the majesty of God, the greatness of God, and the right proper response to that declaration of God's majesty is belief and adoration. Belief and adoration and and trust that God will not fail. He will not fail in any of his promises. He can't because of his majesty.